make me to understand that we're globalizing and we have ability to talk with the audience from the different countries, different time zones, different nationalities, but with the one main interest, which is the session about digital transformation. I'm really glad, uh, glad that we continue talking about the digital transformation in 2022. Happy holidays, past holidays. In Georgia, we still continue celebration as we celebrate New Year twice. And the second New Year, we will celebrate on 13th of January. My name is Lela Machaitze. I am professional project manager, and I am in this field for more than 70 years. I work for different sectors, like public, private, and I'm really, really excited about anything related to the project management, change management, adaptability, and of course, leadership. Couple of words about today's logistics. The session will take, as usually, one hour. It will start with the presentation by our honorable guest. Uh, and uh, I will have questions afterwards. And you feel free to post your questions in the chat section. We will address them uh, after the session. This recording uh, will be posted on the YouTube channel so you can share it with your colleagues, with your friends who are interested in the digital transformation in energy sector. So this is my honor to present today's co-host, my co-host, who is executive uh, uh, senior manager in digital transformation implementation for the organizations. He's in this field for the decades already, and he makes things happen for the organizations. He's specializing in data management, data analysis, industry IOTs, and he's guru for building digitalization strategies, plans, implementation, schedules, and so on. So this is my real honor to have the first, uh, first digital transformation for 2022 with the Shane Macardo. Shane, welcome on the board. Thank you so much, Le and thank you for the introduction as well. It's great, and it's a great honor to be your first, uh, first uh, presentee for 2022. So I've been following uh, what you've been doing and it's very, very interesting and it's great to give back and uh, I suppose help uh, enlighten and educate uh, people on, on the different areas. So um, yeah, thankful to be here. Thank you. So you have experience working in different uh, sectors like in oil and gas, in energy, in renewable energy and, and other maritime sectors. So your experience will be really valuable for, for us and anybody actually who is participating here. So um, floor is yours. You can start your presentation and we will follow with the questions. Dear audience, thank you for joining this evening and please feel free to post your questions in the chat sections. We will absolutely address them at the end. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's been, it's been interesting from, from a digital transformation point of view. I'm really going to talk today about it from a heavy asset industry because as you said, that's predominantly where I've spent most of my career. So in pharmaceuticals, chemicals, oil and gas, and, and more recently, the, the green shift into the renewable side of the business. So I'm just going to try and grab control here, Leila. Let's see if this works. Um, and we'll try to just do, try to you know, position um, a little bit of where we are. Let's see if this works. Um, please do let me know if you see a full screen. If not, we can just continue. Seeing something? Yes, we see that there is a, yes, the screen. Yes, you're seeing something, uh, but you're not seeing everything. Okay, that's good. What I can do is I can just start off. So uh, taking, let's say, a view from the industry and where we have been. So as I said, within the energy industry, we, we have experienced uh, the exact same as the rest of the world have over the last year and a half, a very unprecedented times with a global pandemic redefining how we live and how we work. And we've seen this impact us uh, in many, many different ways, some ways quite negatively, but also it's, it's an opportunity to take a step back and, and, and try to look for those glimmers of, of uh, opportunities that, that we've been able to achieve uh, during the last year, year and a half, especially as we start to slowly reemerge uh, from this pandemic and start trying to re-establish re what the new normal looks like. So 
one positive thing I will take away is as an industry, this pandemic has forced us, really forced us to, to adopt new technologies, uh, new ways of working at a much faster rate than we would have under normal circumstances. So companies were switching over to remote work within, you know, March, by March and April of 2020, once the shutdown started being initiated. That fundamentally changed how people had to operate, maintain these, these facilities uh, that they were at. This never would have happened. We, we work in such a conventional industry. This type of push at that pace would never have happened. So it's been a huge, uh, I would say, a huge testament to technology uh, being able to drive change and drive change sustainably. What do we hear, especially from our customers, users, the industry at large is, we'll never really go back to the way it was before. We, we now know you don't have to be in physical proximity to your manufacturing facilities, your assets, your sites, to actually carry out your work. Now, not all of work is like that, of course, it's, it's certain work, but we can have this hybrid model, which uh, can lend itself to safer operations, more cost-effective operations, and, and, and really move us up, let's say, the digital roadmap that a lot of these companies have laid out for themselves. So that's really positive. At the same time as this disruption uh, from the pandemic, there's been other top of mind, I would say, points for, for the, our industry. And just to lay out, the main one would be this energy transition or the green shift. So we, we truly live in this era of big and bold pledges where you have, uh, where you have every, pretty much every major leader and energy leader around the world uh, committing to be net carbon neutral by 2050 or within 2060. And that's a, that's a big ask. Uh, there's even key targets to be hit by 2030. And what does this actually mean? It means about, you know, from the Paris agreements about maintaining this 1.5 degree temperature uh, limit. The energy industry today accounts for about 73% uh, of all greenhouse gas emissions. So it, it is a challenge that has to be solved by the energy industry. Outside forces, outside pressure help give the focus, help push and promote the needs and, and future societal needs. But to be, to be honest, this challenge has to be solved internally. The energy industry has, has the domain experience, has the competence, has the capability to build out these large, large capital uh, expenditure projects. So it's something that has to come from the inside out. We have to do it. We, we absolutely have to do it. But the way we look at this is it's, it's pragmatic progress. They call it an energy transition for a reason. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions on this, but it's not an energy stop what we're doing today and start something new tomorrow. That would mean the whole world waking up and having a new way of living, you know, completely changing how we live. And that's just not practical. Uh, the, the traditional hydrocarbon business is going to be there for quite some time. It has to be the funds and the equity has to be funneled in into building out new renewable capabilities, etc. So if, if we're going to truly get behind this as an industry, we have to make sure that it's funded correctly. The capital has to be made available. And today, you know, that does that comes from the existing infrastructure. So that's important to, to keep in the back in our back in our minds as we as we talk about the energy transition and, and the energy industry needs uh, going into the future. Uh, some areas that we can definitely touch on and areas that we see big changes happening around is the electrification of society. Now that sounds amazing and it's something we have to do. The future is gonna be electrons and where those electrons don't reach, I personally believe hydrocarbon molecules or hydrogen mo molecules are gonna fill the rest of that gap. So electrons and hydrogen molecules, that's two things to keep in the back of your mind when we're talking about the energy industry as well. So investment into our grids and utility infrastructure is fundamental to this. It's basically the backbone of, of this transition to, to a more electrified society. But that's huge. I mean, you know, if you look at any country across the world, I'm assuming it's quite similar. These local councils, you have to dig up the roads, you have to, you know, put down this infrastructure. That's not something I would say runs exactly smoothly. It always runs over time, over budget, etc. It has to be done, but we can't rely on that just happening tomorrow. So we're going to see a more distributed energy systems. Um, we're going to see maybe more microgrids coming into play in certain areas. You're already seeing that in, in, in the continent of Africa, for example, to actually serve, uh, serve a, a core need. We, 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 we may see this happening to in major cities in, in Europe, America, and Asia. 
uh, to augment needs that just aren't facilitated by building out the existing infrastructure. So there's going to be a lot of investment required there. For us then, we, Kongsberg Digital, the company I'm working for, um, we, we did an analysis. We, so we went during 21 and we did, uh, we went out to the market and we talked to energy leaders. We talked to um, uh, market analysis companies. We talked to consulting firms. And we really wanted to understand where, where's the most impact going to be realized for, for, for this energy transition. And you had your traditional answer. We need to rebalance our energy portfolio, you know, investing in hydrogen, offshore wind, uh, batteries, et cetera, geothermal technology, of course, and, and we have to do that. But that's a mid to long-term solution. Those projects are only nascent. They're starting now. So, so they, they will continue to be invested into, built out, brought online, but that's a mid-term to long-term solution. And until we hit that inflection point, we're still very reliant on hydrocarbons. We have an onus on us as an industry to not just wait around for these renewable or greener energy sources to, to solve everything. We have to look at our existing infrastructure and address that. We, we can operate greener with our existing brownfield infrastructure. We can't, we can't just wait around or give up or say, oh, that's okay, it'll be solved in the next five to 10 years. That's not the case. And from all of these interviews, I would say 90, greater than 90%, they said digitalization as an enabler for this green shift. That's fundamental. So digital transformation for us go hand in hand with, the, with this green shift. And um, that's where we come in and that's what we're talking about today and why it's so important. So I just kind of wanted to paint the bigger picture of where we were, where we are as an industry, um, the changing factors, the levers that we have to take advantage of. And then if we Break it down, you know, Simon Sinek's why, 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 why digitalization? Why should we do this? And we, we have to ask ourselves this as a, as a company, as a service provider, but also as an industry. And you keep breaking it down. It's not just about having the next shiny thing or having AI project under your belt or drones flying around. It's not just about that. And if you break it down and break it down and ask the why, it's we need to change how we work. It's as simple as that. So we need to change and redefine or reimagine how we work as individuals and also as an industry. And that's the why. That then lends itself to what digital transformation looks like. So um, you can talk about it, digitalization as a whole. It's a very broad topic and we can get into some questions, but there's different elements and components. You have your, you have your data analytics, your big data, you have your IoT fabric, you have your... Um, data, data platforms. Um, we talk a lot about digital twins because we feel we feel a lot of the change management, the 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 space where we're going to change how people work, the impact we can have, and where people work happens within a, within a tool like a digital twin. Uh, just having access to a large data lake or data platform doesn't help a field service engineer. You know they need something more simple, uh, more relevant to their actual work process. And, and this normally is centralized into, into a technology stack like a digital twin. And then we can talk about how they all kind of work together uh, to support each other. So this is, this is fundamental, really fundamental uh, for, for, for change, looking at the current work processes, business processes that we have and trying to make fundamental change, not incremental improvement, but fundamental change. So that's sustainable as well. It's uh, back to the old Henry Ford adage. If I asked, you know, what the, what the market wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And <laughs> that's not what we're trying to do here. It has to be something different. It has to be sustainable. And it can't be just uh, improving on what we currently have today. Um, yeah, so I've, I've mentioned a few of these. I'm not going to delve too much into this, but what, what does it mean? It's... It's about collaborating, it's about connecting, and it's about convergence, all right? So connecting, first of all, as people, connecting on a level of technology where you're connecting to data. Uh, it's, it's, it's very, very important starting point. Uh, connecting into your IoT stack, interoperability we have to talk about. So connecting, those three words, connect, converge, and collaborate are, are, are key. And there's a lot, of, uh, a lot to unpack under each one. I'm sure we'll get to it during the session now. But connect is the first stage for us. Converge then is very important because you probably heard about uh, IT, OT convergence, so information technology, operational technology convergence, and, and you could also throw in engineering technology into that mix as well. 
and, and that's been talked about and discussed for the last four or five years and it's important but we like to ele elevate it a little bit up where you talk about workflow or work process convergence because as a conventional industry you have work processes and to be honest almost every heavy asset in the world follows quite similar asset management system processes um, safety uh, protocols it, it's quite consistent they might change a little bit country to country um, but it's it's almost consistent if you're going to change that from the bottom up you, you need to look at it from multiple angles you need to have this convergence so one work process that supports one discipline or one business process in an industry take maintenance for example you know if you do a turnover or change over, over in a pump there's multiple processes actually that run in parallel so you need to look at it from a conversion point of view. And then you can start identifying, hey, can we eliminate some of these steps? Can we um, replace some of those steps with a different type of actor than a human actor? So for example, put a machine learning algorithm in there or, or, or yeah, or we could do um, reporting in a more automated way. So this is where you're gonna see these fundamental shift and this change. So it's not just about looking and replicating the same process that you have in Excel today or in a ring binder and trying to put that into like, you know, a cloud service or some, some microservice that people have. It's about looking at the whole, what are you trying to do with this piece of work? Let's, if you, if you never done this before, how would you, how would you do this today? Oh, we do it like this and this and this. Great. Let's start there. Let's, let's do that. Let's not just try to translate what you're doing from Excel into this uh, cool new tool that you have. So that's really, really important. Um, oh, it seems like these things aren't coming up, but it's okay. We can um, we can stop there because I've finished pretty much uh, sharing what we were going to look at, and we can jump on to uh, we can jump on to some some of the areas that we we find are fundamental to adopting some of this technology. So first of all, scalability it's a huge challenge. You know, people people. Uh, have been doing, especially our industry, have been looking at this in a POC lens. So we have a lot of POCs, uh, very much siloed from each other. I can see my, uh, oh, there my, it's coming back. <laughs> we talked about that challenge beforehand. So we have a lot of POCs that are being run. And what we, what we see as an industry challenge uh, is moving from a proof of concept to a proof of scale. So that's been a big challenge. People love their POCs. People have ownership to their POCs, they're their little babies. Uh, we see people going, yes, this was fantastic. And when you dig in behind that, you start seeing this was the best case scenario. We picked the most optimal piece of equipment. We picked the most with the most amount of sensors, the most amount of data, the cleanest data, uh, the most amount of knowledge and understanding of a system or we pick the best subsea well that's just recently gone online and we have all of the all of the baseline information but then when you try to scale that out that's where you start hitting all these bottlenecks and then people start <laughs> becoming disillusioned and we we have seen you know during during our interview and there's a lot of literature out there as well talking about data driven operations being the most important thing for changing what we do uh, as a heavy asset industry so each asset can improve on the bottom line, can improve on, on where they're going to the top line, can improve how they work, can move up the autonomy ladder, et cetera. And then you have, on the other hand, you have this uh, other, I would say, uh, piece of information coming from McKinsey report saying 70% of all digital projects failed. Uh, failed to meet up to the expectations. So it should, it's not just about fail. We shouldn't stop there. It's about the context and what comes. And why? Why is that? You know, and it's what we've seen. It's, it's really about this proof of concept, not moving to proof of scale. And that's what we really try to address in, in what we do when we address the market uh, with, our, with our tech stack. So, yeah, so it's a very quick introduction there, uh, Leila. Um, so I'll try to set the scene for, for questions. Yeah, a very inter interesting introduction because it gives you understanding of the complexity, uh, the urgency, and also it gives you uh, uh, understanding of the uh, success that should be uh, built in the future with the, the, this transformation and what the parts are playing, what roles they are playing in the uh, digital transformation and especially in the energy sector because the, the, there are so 
so many goals that are set for 2025 and so many forcing, as you mentioned, the, the, the forcing and impeding uh, pressures that companies are experiencing. So the pressure from the requirement from the, the, the outside and the pressure from keeping up with the, the business environment and also the pressure from the existing situation considering the pandemic. So the change they have to adapt and they make those transformation uh, in uh, their existing strategies and plans, uh, make the uh, changes and transformation in the people's mind and the teams who are working and in their mindsets. And of course, then make all those happen. So the question actually, which I have is more of the assets as you are more of the assets concentrated. What are the digital platforms that are currently being used. Uh, you said that combining and connecting all the platforms. So you have you receive the different uh, data and then uh, analyze all those data. So what are, if any, uh, the the, uh, the platforms that are being used for the energy sector and what uh, you see as a pros and cons? How you see that? Yeah, it's it's a good question because it's it's quite fragmented. There, everyone tried to jump on the data platform bandwagon a couple of years ago. So we saw GE come out with Predicts, for example, Honeywell, another big uh, industrial player, and Siemens, of course, they couldn't be left behind. So so it's quite a fragmented uh, fragmented uh, landscape out there. What we have seen is over time these these players, these industrial players, have gone very, very wide and then start to narrow down. So uh, they've started to say, okay, what we're really good as, as an industrial player is we understand our piece of equipment that we supply into the industry. We wanna build out the best analytics capabilities around our other services. And they wanna own that piece. Um, we've seen Microsoft, AWS, Tencent, even in, in China and AliCloud, we see all of these kind of horizontal cloud service providers providing platforms, data platforms in a way. Mm -hmm. So they're building out a lot of microservices so people can do it yourself. Uh, companies can come in there and, and pick up some of these pieces, write their own code and then use some of these microservices, something we do. And I, and I think that's the right way. I think that's the right way to go. The openness and the interoperability is so fundamental and so key. So for a long time in our industry, systems were built to be closed. They weren't built to be shared. And that was on purpose because they weren't rewarded to be open. Uh, they needed to work safely and securely. We're a very safety conscious industry. And now, op and operators suffered for that, you know, for years they suffered, you know, they, they were paying service companies for like drilling. It's, it's notorious in the drilling side of the business where they paid service companies to collect this data. And then they had to pay again to actually get access to their data. And they, they, they drove them mad for years. And then they wanted a, a kind of a common platform that would come in or a common system of engagement that would come in and connect to this information make it available in a very standard way through APIs. So just to have a standard term there, APIs. That is key to any of these platforms coming out. So there's disadvantages where you can be perceived as a one-stop shop, so big industrial players, and the industry trying to move away from that because they don't want to have this lock-in. And then um, trying to change the whole business model because they started that way to being completely open and being open to competitors in this case. So then we've seen other more nimbler players come in and fill that role. So there's quite a few companies out there now. Futuron, or sorry, uh, yeah, Futuron, for example, are doing this in offshore. So they're just uh, a pure platform that are being used for offshore uh, operations. They come in and they aggregate all the information in a neutral way from concept selection all the way up to operations. And then you have other companies that can uh, take over from the operations and maintenance. Um, but they're doing an excellent job. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, other companies, um, Becca and these companies like that, are also filling this role. We see Aviva playing a, a role here as well, uh, building out from their engineering data warehouse, which is kind of like an asset hierarchy, um, a traditional asset hierarchy uh, system of record inside these assets. So it's quite a, quite a few players coming in here. But really what's happening is the nimble ones, the more vendor neutral ones, uh, the ones that have taken a position of openness from day one, they're the ones that I believe are going to come out the other side as, as, as winners um, for, for this play. 
So horizontally, it's coming from the cloud service providers, but on a vertical level with the domain experience is coming from these types of companies. Shane, you mentioned the twins model. Can you deep dive into this, what it means and how it works and explain the, 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 the in more details? Sure. I. God, I, 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 I dread it every time someone asks me, to, what's a digital twin? And it's, it's, there's so many terminologies out there and so many people have different and companies have different understandings of it. Um, for me, you know, there's the, the industry standards, I would say, description now that, you know, it's a virtual representation of your physical assets. Yeah. So, and, and that, that's a good enough place to start. Um, for me, it, there's a lot more to unpack than just that because that, that's just a description. Digital twin is like a terminology. It's like the internet in, in, the, in the 90s. You know, you're not building the internet, but the internet lives on and we still use it in our, in our vernacular. Digital twins are going to live on. I think it's a very easy to understand concept. Uh, really, how we look at it is every single person out there has one of these smartphones, right? And that has changed with the advent of the iPhone coming out in 2007, that changed how we interact with our lives through that lens. It, it's changed how we stay connected. It's changed how we follow our fitness or our mindfulness. It's, it, we have an entire library of books, songs, movies. It's completely changed how we interact yeah, in, with our lives through that. A digital twin is an industrial work surface. So it's a place where you go and execute your work every single day. So you come into work and, and I would see the future here being, you come in, you have your email say, on one side and then you go into your digital twin to perform and execute and close out your piece of work. So that means that all your business work processes have to be in there. You have to be able to connect to all your data sources that, that you require to collect uh, the insights you need. There has to be engines in there, such as data analytic engines, there has to be interoperability capabilities so you can move information from one source to another source. There has to be a workflow engine, and we focus a lot on that piece where you come in and perform that work or you set up a new workflow based on some changes or evolving, um, evolving operations in, in a facility. And it needs to work across devices. So when I talk about a work surface, I don't just mean like an ATEX rated, uh, you know, a safety rated iPad. We're talking about laptop, your iPad, your phone, real wear or, or wearable virtual reality and augmented reality capabilities. Wherever you go, you, you can take your work surface and you can open up the same piece of information. And that then allows these industrial workers to enjoy the same digital capabilities that we have in our current lives within a work environment. And that then starts changing behavior. Think about how your behavior has changed in the last 10 years with a mobile phone or a smartphone. It will be the exact same with this technology and we hope it's for the best. So we can you know, curate, we can build out certain technologies that will guide behavior into the behavior we want to see, such as energy, uh, sorry, the energy transition. And we've seen that, just to give you a quick example there, we've seen that happen where uh, an operators were, you know, operating within their systems and they were just uh, responsible for increasing capacity. And normally what you do there typically, and I'm taking this from a very, uh, let's say, very simplified approach, but you want to boost pressure to increase your capacity throughput. That requires energy. Energy is one of the biggest contributors to greenhouse gases in a facility, in an asset. You don't see that impact if you can't visualize it or see what your action has. You're just going to continue to do that again and again. So just by simply bringing transparency into a twin. So if you're out in the field, you may have an ATX rated tablet and you see, oh, I'm going to just whack up this pressure. And then you see, oh, my action here has had a direct impact on the overall greenhouse gas emissions from the facility, do I need to do this to the same level of aggression or can we stage this where we get a more smoother profile on, on the energy usage and smoother profile on the greenhouse gases? That's the type of behavioral change we can expect to see if digitalization is done with purpose. And actually, when you discuss and give us all these cases, I imagine for myself, the person, the welder uh, who is welding the pipe 
and doing the very complicated welding, uh, having in her in his hand the, the mobile, a mobile or iPad is directly connected to the, the center of the operators who are like in the Formula One, directing him to do welding from inside out. So if you imagine how far and what capabilities, so. Uh, it for me it's like uh, out of magic uh, how much capacities uh, and capabilities we will have and how much adaptability we will need in the in the future so actually i i wrote the the report from mckinsey about this uh, uh, failure of 70 percent and i was Oh my God! We will need a lot of lot more um, uh, be more change uh, like a recipient adapting to the changes. So the people we all those digital transformations involve people because um, at the board the, the the company management makes decisions and those decisions usually are not always made in one one glance. It, it because it requires funding. It uh, uh, it, it requires lots of infrastructural change and uh, so on. So the decisions are made very carefully not to destroy the existing infrastructure. So, uh, and uh, lots of other players are like, like you mentioned, the safety, health and safety procedures and other players are coming in the play. My next question is that how ready the uh, the atmosphere in the organizations like people how ready they are for the, those change because the technology is uh, developing much faster than people's capacity for to adapt to the, those changes no it's a it's a very good point i mean the change management side we, we can't overlook that it's it's so fundamental as an industry, I think there's a huge amount of enthusiasm for this, you know, a huge amount of enthusiasm, but there's also been disillusionment because people have, have either run some of these projects over the last five years and it just, it went nowhere. It didn't do anything. It didn't change uh, anything for me. So there's a little bit of reticence for those people who have been burnt, but in general, thankfully, there's still a huge appetite, huge appetite for this. And it's been driven from the top down. Um, where where I see the change management being operationalized is right down at the organization level that are going to adopt this technology. So let's take a step back and go, all right, we want to digitalize. We want a digital twin for an asset. Great. There's a fundamental layer that goes in for a twin and just, you know, a digital twin is a construct, right? And like any construct, you have a solid foundation. That foundation is your data layer. You could have an existing data platform. The twin just plugs into that. You may not have that data platform. The twin can provide some capabilities in that in that area uh, to actually address those needs. So it's flexible. It should be flexible enough uh, to be able to plug and play. From there, then you start to find your use cases. You have to have a purpose. You can't just say, oh, "I want a digital twin." Okay, here's 20, 30, 40 data sources. They're all uh, ingested. They're all uh, contextualized or put. In, in context with each other where you can, there's a relationship uh, between one piece of data and another piece of data. You can search that data, you can visualize that data. Has that value? Yes, it has some value. Uh, and it's a great starting point because it's a single source of truth. But for your maintenance worker, for your production optimization, for your supply chain, you know, for your electrical engineer, what does that change? Yeah, I can access my data. But you need to put that behind a business case. I'll give you one example. Um, flange management, right? This is this is something that's so ubiquitous in our whole industry. It's wherever two pipes come together. You probably have seen this in, in, in a smaller scale, and you see the two pipes come together, and they have bolts going around to keep the pipes together. So it's like a, a circle with maybe I don't know 20, 20 bolts. This is a activity that happens every single day on every asset where there's pipes and flow, and it accounts for faulty flange management accounts for 30% of all emissions in gas onshore gas facilities, 30% of all emissions, right? So getting behind that and going, hey, can we build a digital tool that would visualize, uh, identify that we've done this uh, piece of work correctly, sign off on that piece of work, and then close it out? Because the other challenge is, because you have thousands of where these joints are, are, are in a facility, you end up doing it twice or three times by accident because you've just signed it off on paper. 
But if you have a 3D element with a geo-services associated with it, you go, oh yeah, I've been here already. Already closed out this piece of work and it's done. So that, that addresses a problem on so many levels. It addresses on the um, capacity, it addresses on time management and waste, waste on, on people redoing a piece of work. Uh, material that you might have used the second time or a new piece of equipment that you can just use once. It also addresses your, your emissions which directly impact your, your um, energy transition. So you need to identify those use cases that have direct impact and that are baked into your work processes day by day, week by week, quarter by quarter, year by year. Then you need to work with those people and say, uh, people doing this job and go, this is how we're going to do it and explain the why. why. Well, you know the way you complain that you've done that two or three times and you've you, you know, you wasted your time setting up scaffolding, going all the way back up to that piece of equipment. That's not going to happen anymore. And it's amazing. It's really amazing to see those early adopters bubble up. They, they come through and they go, oh, we can never go back to doing this uh, the way we did it before. And you need to cultivate those early adopters and, and create champions out of them. So we've had some we've had very good experiences with assets where there's a change management uh, champion at these assets. And then they, they don't know everything. They don't know everything about the facility, but they, they know people and they help us identify different disciplines. And then during the process of bringing the technology in, we go, see that person, she's really good. Or that person, he's really good at this. He's really asking the right questions. She's putting forward some new requests for new features and functionality. Is there any chance we could get them to train the next set of um, the next set of operators or the next set of users? And uh, it just started percolates down uh, to these early adopters. But you need you need to have a very solid change management anchored at the operational level and not just at the you know the senior management level. Senior management push it and push it down, and then operational level adopt it, adopt it at scale. Yeah, I completely agree with you that there should be created change agents who will be like advocating all those changes and explaining the benefits of all those changes and all those all the digital transformation that is being done by the company. You mentioned several times, and this is unavoidable when we talk about digitalization, that data is collected, data is analyzed, data is collected, analyzed. But we all remember, we have to remember that there is a security associated with all the lots of data available. There should be considered cyber securities that this data is protected. What do you think? How uh, this uh, cyber security will work for the energy sector? Because there will be lots of uh, more and more data collected by the companies. It's a, it's a very, very good point. I mean, this orchestration of data done through your, your platforms or your twins, um, that's happening. It's happening in the cloud as well. So more and more, uh, these our industry is moving, moving towards cloud service providers, hosting of data there, storing of data there. And this wasn't the case. This wasn't the case a very short time ago. Uh, it's happening uh, more in more recent times. The average cost of a data breach in, in, in an asset in America is close to 150 million USD. It's, it's big, right? So that, that was a number that came out in 2020 off the top of my head. The, there's also the repetition, yeah, and that, that's counting in, you know, the actual operational level of it, the reputation. And the big concern is this operational access that you get right down to a controller, controller level. This has happened over the years, even with the isolated, isolated systems that we have, this, uh, the, the security layers that we put in play. And it's typically happened because of human error. That's you, you've left the port open. Um, you've given access to people that you shouldn't have. You've shared um, login, login credentials. It's typically happened because of that. It, I'm not saying it's going to be better as you move to the cloud, but there's more layers involved because your cloud service provider have their own cybersecurity element. Um, us as a SaaS uh, software, industrial software company, we have we do our own. We have our cyber uh, cybersecurity operating centers. We do cloud penetration tests. We do uh, regular pings on, on, on the data that's been transferred and stored. So it's a double layer. And then, of course, you have the, the you follow the safety systems or the IRN systems for the various assets and the various customers. So again, it's like you know, two to uh, authentication, double authentication, login, um, et cetera, et cetera. And you follow those procedures. 
you need to close off all those gaps. And cybersecurity isn't something that you just talk about or we leave up to our cyber, um, our cyber engineers. It's something that we bring right down to our developer level. Because as you're developing software, we, we want to leave the flexibility as a SaaS company, you know, as a, as a fast-moving technology company. We want them the flexibility to use um, open source libraries. We want the flexibility of using the software um, uh, tools that are coming out, the latest and greatest, because that's really where the software developers like, like to learn new things. But you need to make sure that they're following processes at their level, not just checking it afterwards. So we have processes where white source is a, a really cool tool where you check these open sources. Has there been any red flags associated with this? Yes, then we can't use it. So we allow flexibility while also maintaining security. So I think there's increased focus. I don't think we're ever going to get away from it. There's, there's some really smart hackers out there, you know, Dragonfly in 2017, they were going after all the energy systems in, in the US and they hacked quite a few. Symantec, their, their safety, cybersecurity. I was at a conference uh, where they talked about this and they didn't name names, but it was several companies uh, that were hacked during that year, 2017, 2018, those years. And um, they said, you know, could this have been avoided uh, under other circumstances? Yes, but then we now know where those loops were and we have to close out and box out that and build more air gaps. But you're never going to get away from it. You just need to make sure it's built into your day-to-day at every level of the organization. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Actually, you mentioned several times you need to readjust your processes, readjust your processes. One of the processes, actually, we have BP in Georgia, and I know the BP office has uh, gone through the big transformation, like they um, re-engineer their processes as well as re-engineer their project management. For example, if they want to change any part or do any big maintenance, they do it as a projectized, but the approach they were using initially it was more of waterfall approach and now they shift from the waterfall to agile so it was for me big surprise because this is whole shift of mindset of the people who are doing planning who are implementing and I was amazed that the, the girl in our um, uh, city in the, 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 the Tbilisi is controlling the digitally she's controlling what is happening on the pipe in the remote about 100 kilometers away pipe how all this is done so it's just mind-blowing how, how all this happens and I'm really um, really excited about all those changes but um, the next question that uh, we have uh, one more question here from uh, Augusto I think we can switch uh, to our audience I invite all the participants to take a look at the book uh, digital transformation, business panacea of the 21st century, where many of the topics being discussed in this session and discussed in details with many cases, experts' opinions, uh, and frameworks to implement digital transformation process available in Amazon. Thank you, Augusto. Thank you for sharing this. Uh, actually, the uh, reason I invite the par- uh, the practitioners for this, the, because they, the uh, like. Uh, Shane, you are the person who participates in development uh, and the strategies in the plans from the executive level. So the, where the all big, uh, big thinkers are located. So how you make the decisions about the uh, prioritization, like in the strategies, the, you develop the strategies. I'm sure that every company uh, has the digital transformation strategies. How do you think the government should be supporting or what role the government with the policies and procedures and laws is playing with all this? It's a good question. I mean, regulation and technology, when they converge, sometimes they don't always match. So if you look at GDPR and blockchain, GDPR means you have to delete all of these information after two years, you know, and blockchain, it's immutable ledger. That information is all stored away forever. So that's a very good example of where regulations so of policy and technology converge and then, yeah, just doesn't make sense. I, I you know, we need to influence uh, and we have successfully used technology, in fact, to drive regulation change. We, we, we have been able to do that. So here in Norway, as an example, and this is going back... Uh, eight, nine years ago, 
uh, we're working with an operator who were developing a small field and these are called marginal fields. So they're only gonna survive, um, their lifetime is maybe four to six years. And you do a cost benefit analysis and you go, you know, we can't really afford to develop this field similar to a field that's gonna, you know, have a life uh, of operation for 40, 50 years. So you wanna do it most efficiently. And one of those things is you wanna put a, a physical meter on the bottom of the ocean that measures flow coming out of a pipe or a well, excuse me. And this is a huge cost. It was about 15 million euros uh, to um, instrument all of these wells. And it wasn't that many, it was like five or six. So then they went to the regulatory body, the Norwegian Petroleum Directive, and they said, hey, could we use technology a virtual sensor instead of these physical sensors, which is marginally uh, as, as, as expensive. And otherwise we just can't develop this field. And uh, they said, okay, we wanna have a look at this technology. We wanna test the accuracy of the technology. And the reason being is you pay your taxes based on what's measured. So the government was very motivated, let's say, to know that this was accurate. And it proved out that it was, and it was the world's first virtual um, technology that we use for fiscal allocation uh, from that field and they were able to develop it. So that's a good example of where technology can drive policy change. We're also involved and it, this is Kongsberg where, where it's openly announced but we're working with a subsea uh, minerals company called The Metals Company where they're trying to address the battery life cycle and battery value chain challenge. So as we become more electric and more batteries are using we, we, we don't have enough technology to meet that demand. Uh, and they're looking at a sustainable and environmentally friendly way to extract metal nodules from the bottom of the ocean. And then you're not exposing it to strip mining like you have in, in different continents around the world. Uh, there's a lot of negative elements to consider with that. And you wanna use technology like a digital twin to present their entire operations transparently so that the regulation can follow it the public can follow it and they can ensure that they have a license to operate. So there they're using technology to drive regulation and change. So I'm taking it from that perspective. We often get it, we often enter into these uh, discussions like countries where they have requirements for in-country data storage and we can help point towards other examples of how you know your cybersecurity or you can uh, build walls and air, air gaps between this types of information and it helps more uh, I would say non or um, not international oil companies, but um, uh, national oil companies, excuse me, struggled there for a minute, national oil companies uh, to understand how they can change policies as well at a local, smaller uh, governmental level. So technology really can drive that if you can prove it and then support, maintain, measure and follow. So that's really, really key. Um, I Just to circle back to you mentioned there about changing uh, concepts about, you know, the agile mindset. That is exactly happening. And, and it's what you need to do at a regulatory uh, level as well. You need to be able to go in there and change how people think, how they visualize this industry, how it should be operated, how we work in this industry. And we've seen this happen with, I would say, some of the most recalcitrant and stubborn operators <laughs> in the world. You know, they've worked in these facilities for 20, 30 years. They know their systems and go, I'm not adopting that. That's not how we did it 10, 15 years ago. And then you start hearing them talk about, you know, maintenance typically is planned one to two years in advance because there's such a huge project. It's a project and the one to two years. And then they're talking about sprints. Oh, in the next sprint, this is going to happen. So you can easily influence from a grassroots change mindsets and as long as you can show and demonstrate progress and move forward. And that's the exact same with changing regulation. Careful, considerate progress. We can definitely do that. All right, now I'm not aware of any uh, digital transformation laws in Georgia which are addressing that process in energy sector. Maybe I'm not aware, but uh, I haven't really come up or seen any laws. Uh, are there any regulations in Norway which are addressing those specifically? It's, um, there are many, I mean, we, we, as an industry, as I said, we have a lot of recommended practices. We have a lot of um, ISO certified uh, regulations. 
And what we're finding is as, as technology is more and more deployed, we're seeing the limitations of those recommended practices and guidelines. So almost, I would say monthly, we, we see these limitations. The, the, the operating uh, and customers or the, the, the assets, uh, the people operating the assets, they then tend to take it to internally within their organizations. And then they normally take it with, let's say energy regulatory body. And they do have, they do have uh, yearly meetups where they do discuss and, and address, is this relevant anymore for us as an industry? So we're there as an enabler for these operators, these asset owners uh, to say, hey, how are you going to maintain and operate your assets of the future? We believe it's going in this direction. Does the regulation actually support this or does it hinder this? Do you need to take this up at your next meeting with your with the regulatory body? So we're, we're there to enable it up and look towards the future. I mean, a lot a lot of what's been discussed recently is autonomous operations. You know, we want to be, you know, demand certain um, facilities. It's, I don't think it's ever going to be, we're not going to uh, have this completely autonomous. It's just not possible. We're always going to have a human in the loop, but the deepening of technology and humans is really what the uh, industry 5.0 is talking about, how you define the rules for this working. And defining those rules are going to be, very much linked to regulation, actually, because machine learning and algorithms, you can build biases into machine learning and AI. And we have to be very careful. I'm not advocating for regulating all of this, but at least setting up guidelines and rules for building these in the future. Safety critical, safety critical industry that we're working in, they're not gonna accept black box analytics. Black box analytics is very, very scary. We need to be able to test those data models and we can, we're okay. We're working within what we call gray box analytics and that's hybrid machine learning where you mix physics-based models. So something that's grounded in physics, something that makes sense that we've been, you know, using for 100, 150 years in combination with pure data-driven models. So one supports the other with data sets or training sets. And at the same time, it can, the physics models can constrain the data models. So you're not going to get anything crazy or, um, you know, ramp this up to a thousand degrees Celsius because we feel that's the most optimum based on our data model. That makes no physical sense. You know, we need to be able to constrain these models, lending trust. And once you start building trust, then you can also start addressing some of these regulations um, as we go into the future. Interesting. We have a question. I think we can take this question and our hour our, our, our will round up. Uh, question from Jacob. Hello. How, hi, Jacob. How do you think blockchain fits in the digital transformation and in the energy industry? Are there any projects in progress in Norway, I guess? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in blockchain, actually. It's... Um... It's one of those technologies, you know, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. I still think we, it's a tip of the iceberg because we haven't really had the capability to scale. Drones, I think, are going to play a big role and, and blockchain, actually. So they're my three that I'm betting on going into the future. The, the business case for this is still evolving, uh, for sure. Um, we see companies like Data Gumbo, for example, it's a blockchain company uh, that are working into the supply chain side of it. We um, full disclosure, we're collaborating with them, looking into use cases uh, in Norway and outside of Norway. And it, it makes a lot of sense when you remember at the start, I talked about convergence of workflows and work processes. So if you look at, again, I, I use this analogy. If you look at a changeover for a pump, you want to change out a piece of equipment like a pump. There are, I can't remember exactly, but there are probably in an asset management system or work, work process, there's like 20 or 30 steps with five to six people along those steps. So from uh, an engineer going out, um, viewing the pump to people on the supply chain side going, okay, here's our service vendors. Uh, this is when it's up for maintenance next time. People planning that maintenance, so you have planners, the people ordering the parts in the warehouse and bringing it in. So there's a, there's a long connect, a lot of connecting points there. If you look at one of the use cases that um, at least we've seen from blockchain, if you have a, a twin and you have, some predictive maintenance alarm. So a predictive maintenance alarm goes off. Uh, you have one month remaining useful life on this remaining useful life, excuse me, on this piece of equipment. That then can trigger a supply chain uh, process. And then you can go, okay, we need this piece of equipment in one month. 
then you can go back onto what we call a supplier platform that's uh, secure through blockchain. Traditionally, you would have had a couple of suppliers on, on um, contracts where you go have this piece of work, we want you to tender for this piece of work and then you select that, uh, the vendor, or you may have a single source for three to, three to five years. What you're doing here is you're completely changing that business model, opening it up to the market and going, hey, this is a piece of equipment we're looking for, this standard, this model, this design. You're uh, registered as a, as a vendor, it's open to everyone, they review it, they get an opportunity to put a quote back in and say, we can deliver X stage at this price. And it's in a blockchain. And then they go, okay, we accept this offer. It's the best offer for different criteria. And that can be set up. Great. So this, this vendor wins. Then they deliver the piece of equipment within that time frame. The engineer takes that piece of equipment, receives it, installs it, does a work over, checks off that that piece of work is closed, it goes back automatically all the way through the system and releases payment to that, uh, to that vendor. So you're reducing this, uh, the, the workflow, uh, the work processes, you're making it much simpler, you're automating a lot of this boring work. Um, you're also looking at um, uh, changing the supply chain in the sense you don't anymore need these big warehouses with lots and lots of um, uh, spare parts. That's just gone. You just uh, these suppliers have them stored somewhere in a decentralized way. So that's a huge cost that's taking out of the, out of uh, out of play. And then you get the, the benefit of uh, smaller companies who are more geared towards changing out their lines for building these components. Because you got to remember these these larger companies when they get a request, you know this equipment could be 20, 30 years old. They've moved on in their manufacturing facilities. They've changed out these lines, and it's a cost to them. They don't want to do one piece, two pieces. They want to like a thousand piece uh, bulk order uh, to make sense. So then you're really changing the business model on on the supplier side as well. So that's an example. Um, I don't know if that resonated or made sense, but yeah. When you thought, but when you said about the, the reducing the time of delivery and supply chain and, and removing some of the parts, it means that there will be no storage uh, fees associated, there will be no time spent on this, no people behind those orders checking. So it even though digital transformation considers the funding and investments, lots of its methods, but there is a payback in terms of all those savings. So how it, I wonder how all this will affect the future pricing of energy sector. So this is, but this is, I guess, the, another topic of discussion. <laughs> Everyone's talking about it in Europe this year, at least. It's gone so expensive. Look, this has to be adopted at scale in order for us to have real impact, you know, on bottom line. Because if you have this again as a pilot, um, you need you need people to say, yeah, we don't need our warehouses anymore. We're just going to use this, you know, service platform uh, that's blockchain with all these distributed suppliers. So to really see impact. So we're really promoting, you know, in 2022, adopted scale. And, and we often talk about, you know, think big, start small and scale fast. That's so fundamental. So everything is right. We want to do this. This is our digital roadmap. Okay, great. Let's start small. Where do we need to start? Okay, boom. And let's scale fast. Let's make sure we have the technology stack used, you know, globally across thousands of users, across locations, across data sensors. You need to make sure you have all of these pieces in play as well. So it's... Um, yeah, there's no silver bullet here, but maybe there's there is, 10 bronze bullets. I don't know. <laughs> there is no time for long thinking and projections, but you will start with the piloting and then you'll see. This is the one way of uh, thinking mm -hmm. agile, actually. <laughs> Iterate and adopt fast and adopt at scale. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Oh, thank you so much. It was very interesting discussion. I really appreciate your time and your willingness to share all your experience with us. I would like uh, to um, uh, ask everybody to join us on a, a different events which will follow up and you see the, the agenda. The recording of this uh, video will be posted on the YouTube channel so you can share with your colleagues and friends. Uh, thank you for participating. Thank you for uh, your questions and thank you everybody and see you uh, during our next call. Shane, thank you very much and have a, a brilliant rest of the day. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, thank you everyone. Bye-bye.